As always, thanks for being here. Thanks for coming. Um, this was a, a full day, to be sure. I'm not, I'm not sure how clear my head is after, after today, but I am, I'm excited to, to do this. Again, this is pretty relaxed. So uh, at any time you feel like you need to stand up and walk around or get more food or whatever, that is totally fine with me. Feel, feel free to do what you got to do. Uh, you are, uh, if case you've forgotten or you were hoping to be somewhere else, you are currently sitting in a seminar called Lions, Locust, and the Lamb. So if you wanted to be at the seminar the other church is offering, you could, you could do that. But really what we're doing is we are going to be exploring the book of Revelation. We're just going to walk through the text and, and see if we can uh, uh, explore some of the, the mysteries that, that are contained in this text. Uh, again, the number is on the board, so as we walk through the text, uh, and as you see things that are interesting, intriguing, that I, and again, you obviously know that I'm going to have to skip a, a ton of stuff. Every single chapter has all sorts of interpretive issues that are pretty gnarly that we're only going to be able to touch on or just flat out skip. So uh, my apologies in advance for that. But you can ask questions about anything, text that number, and uh, you can ask it and we'll talk about it. We'll try to leave lots of room for, for questions. Also, on the table there are the booklet for tonight. It's just my main headings and subheadings with lots of space to write, so if you want that. Also, if you texted me and you wanted this this, all the, the 37, 38 pages. If you wanted all this, I'll, I'll send you a PDF of it and you can, and you can have it, okay? Um, also, uh, you know, again, I would, what I was thinking, trying to do this in one night, that was ambitious, and I guess I had, I guess I had good motives for that. But, uh, you know, realistically, if we want to do justice to the text and help you understand Revelation well, we'll take a couple weeks to do this. So tonight, we're going to... Uh, he, he get through uh, one through five, and then the next time we meet, which is yet to be determined, we'll do six through part of 19, and then the last time we'll do 19 through 22. So that last time will be devoted completely to the kingdom, the new heavens, new earth, and the new Jerusalem. So we'll spend an entire evening just talking about the eternal state, which will be really, really good and, and sweet, no doubt. Okay, uh, any, any questions at all about what we're doing, where we're going? So this is going to be a really good time. I can't wait for this. We're going to we're going to rock and roll and we're going to go real fast, but hopefully hopefully enough to retain. Okay, let's pray and then we'll dive in. Oh Lord, we are grateful for your word and we are grateful for the book of Revelation, although so much of it is feels a little beyond us, a little above our our exegetical pay grade. Um we come to you, Lord, because we want to know your word. And, and so, Lord, we ask you that you would open our eyes to behold wonderful things in it. Oh, Lord, the mysteries are great, and yet we know that what is in the text are things that are good for our souls. You put the book of Revelation in your word because it is part of our sanctification. Without it, we cannot live lives the way we must. Oh, Lord, we are not as effective for the Great Commission without the book of Revelation. And so we, we come to you, Lord, and, and we know that there are so many things we're going to have to leave out. But I pray that you would cause us to see things we would not otherwise see in the text cause us to, to feel the weight and gravity of the realities that are here in the text. I pray that we would leave more zealous for the Great Commission than when we came in. I pray that Christ, you would be more precious and valuable in our estimation than when we first showed up. I pray that you would be that much more of a treasure to us. And I pray that the outcome of this, O oh Lord, one of the results of this would be 
that we would be more bold and courageous with the gospel, Lord. The last chapter of history has been written. It is here. We know where human history is headed, and that gives us unbelievable courage and confidence to proclaim the gospel without shame, without fear, knowing that regardless of what happens, even if it was our martyrdom, that you have all of history planned out and everything is going according to plan. So, Thank you for this time, Lord. Again, open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law. Amen. Uh, so tonight, we, in many senses, are going to tear the fabric of reality. And like sort of with the book of Daniel, we're going to get a glimpse of divine reality. Um, and what I mean is, is that Revelation, as you know, is prophetic apocalyptic literature filled with bizarre creepy, even disturbing images, and yet those images are part of a message that is designed to do one profound, ultimate thing in your lives, namely, namely, revelation, prophecy, apocalyptic literature is designed to change the way you view the universe. See, what you have to understand is that revelation, apocalyptic literature, is designed to transform the lenses by which you make sense out of the world. Put it this way, apocalyptic writing with all of its bizarre, strange, creepy images is designed to help you see to, to the world for what it really is, namely as the uninterrupted domain of God's activity. That's what apocalyptic literature is designed to do. Not just show you the end and spoil the surprise ending of history, which is what it does, but also just to help you see that, that although you can't see or feel the, the sovereignty of God in a tangible way, that it is the uninterrupted domain of God's activity. And there's a, I had this funny experience years and years ago as a new believer when I was working at a fruit stand back in Spokane. And um, I was working at this fruit stand in the summer and this, this Volkswagen van pulls up where the customers could kind of park and this Volkswagen van pulls up. And it was very clear by the shape of the van and the garbage that was basically spilling out of the windows that this this lady lived inside the van and she gets out and, and you remember, uh, uh, not, not Empire Strikes Back, um, uh, Back to the Future and Doc Brown and his crazy, you know, uh, his crazy white hair. This lady looked exactly like Doc Brown from, from Return, uh, not Return of the Jedi. What is wrong with me? Anyway, you know who I'm talking about. I need to go, to, I need to take a nap. Uh, so she gets out this crazy, you know, looking lady. And she was very kind, and she's buying fruit. And she had this, this really funny, you know, those Christian T-shirts. Um, and it had this big lion on it, and it said, the Lion of Judah. And I said, oh, I like your shirt. I said, I'm a, I'm a Christian. And she goes, oh, oh, me too. And, and, uh, and I said, well, I, I, really, I really like the book of Revelation. I just, uh, I just don't know why it's so hard to understand. And she goes, well, why would God put something in his word that he didn't want us to understand? Oh, oh, well, that's... That, that might be a little naive in one sense, but, but I think she was on to something. Um, now, again, apocalyptic literature like Revelation is deliberately challenging. Um, God put things in his word that he wants us to fight for and work at and labor over and sweat over a little bit. There's, there is uh, a lot of exegetical work to be done to understand Revelation, a lot of work in the Old Testament that you got to do to really fully appreciate Revelation. But in one sense... She's right. The apocalyptic literature is not designed to be deliberately 
evasive and it's not like God doesn't want you to know what it says because one of the things about apocalyptic literature that is so fascinating is that if you'll notice half the chapter will have this crazy stuff and then the second half of the chapter will include what an explanation an explanation so God does want us to know now we may not be able to pinpoint oh yeah this is this and this is this and this is going to be that person we may not be able to do that but it is clear enough uh, what God wants us to get out of it. So, so here's the format of the seminar. All I'm going to do is give you the unfiltered, undiluted exposition of the sacred text of Revelation. Well, all we're going to do is just walk through the text. Not flashy, not a lot of pizzazz, just walking through the text. We'll take two to three, three sessions to, to do this. And the reason why I'm doing this seminar it's not just because it dovetails well with Daniel, which it does, and, and not because the book is fascinating and controversial, although it is that. The reason why I'm, I'm teaching this thing on Revelation is because I want you to be blessed. I want you to be blessed. And what I mean is, Revelation 1, verse 3, promises a blessing to those who read the book and to those who hear the book and to those who keep and obey the book. Isn't that interesting? Revelation is the only book in the New Testament that promises and guarantees a blessing upon those who read it and hear it and who keep it. So that's why I'm teaching on Revelation because I want you to experience the blessing that Revelation promises. And so I really believe there is a kind of sober-minded stability, a, a glad-hearted trust, a kingdom-minded priorities, a blood-earnest evangelism, a, a Christ-exalting effectiveness for the Great Commission that is produced if you know and love and absorb this book into the bloodstream of your soul. Your lives will change if you read and study this book. So I want this to be a blessed church. That's why we're doing a seminar on the book of Revelation. Now, part two in your notes, let me say a few things about the background of the book of Revelation. And just so you know, I'll say this at the outset. The, inevitably, there's going to be a hundred things that I say that you're going to go, I've heard a different view on that, or I might hold a different position, or, or, or there's going to be all of that. Just so you know, that's one of the delightful challenges of Revelation is that there is a, there is a interpretive challenge debate in every single passage, not just every chapter, every single passage. So uh, if you want to uh, ask questions about any one of those things, you can. So there's even debates about what year it was written. I mean, there's no stone unturned here, but here's where we're going to go. Historical circumstances behind Revelation. When the Apostle John was writing this letter, uh, does anyone know about what year it was? Yeah, in fact, I would say it was exactly around that time, A.D. 95. And so that means John was not a, was not a young teenager. He was a, a man in his 90s. He was a, a senior citizen. Um, and, and where was he at the time of writing? He actually identifies in chapter 1, but where was he? Yeah, it was in the Isle of Patmos, right? Which sounds like a really cool vacation destination. It was not that. It was not pretty. It was very rocky, very inhospitable. And, and what was he doing there? What Was he on vacation? Hey, I'm on a writing leave. Let's go to Patmos. What was he doing there? He was exiled. He was exiled. And what were his daily activities? It, it, there, there's, there are possibilities that we know what his daily activity was. 
You know what he was doing? Yes, was. he was. He was in a chain gang breaking rocks for the Roman Empire. Sweet gig. So this senior citizen in his 90s cracking rocks with a sledgehammer. That's brutal. Absolutely brutal. And at the time of writing, a man named Domitian was the Roman Empire, and this guy was a cruel, thirsty, uh, bloodthirsty, vindictive, uh, violent dictator who was infatuated with himself. And his latest policy, not even kidding, was the, that you had to worship him or you die. If you didn't worship him or the Roman gods, you were a threat to the Roman Empire. And if you were the threat, a threat to the Roman Empire, you very well could have your grave be the empty stomach of a lion at the Colosseum. And the ripple effects of this persecution was, I mean, this gave permission empire-wide to begin to persecute Christians. And so the ripple effects of this was felt throughout, including in Asia Minor, where all of the original recipients of this letter, that's where they lived. And so... Uh, what these seven churches needed, and by extension, all churches throughout all time, what they needed was a glimpse of the final chapter of God's plan for history. That's what this persecuted church need, or a church that was at at the very least about to face persecution. They needed to see the very ending of what God had planned uh, because that is the thing that would sustain them through trials and suffering and persecution and possibly even martyrdom. Why do you think that is? Why why is it that out of all the things that, that God could give a suffering church, he would give them the book of Revelation? I mean, that's crazy, right? That's a lot of crazy stuff. And it's like, that's what they needed to strengthen their souls. And yet, why would a book unfolding the final chapter of God's plan, why would that be an effective tool to sustain them in the midst of danger and persecution? Why do you think? Totally, absolutely. Hope as people, right? Because, because if they have to lay their head on the chopping block and axe head flash in the sun and, and, it's, and it's over, they have the assurance that, well, this, my death, this is not the end, right? There is, there is hope beyond this. Yeah, why else? God is a righteous judge. There's a lot of wrath and judgment in this book, right? And, and there's a lot of promise of vindication of the saints in this book. And in fact, in fact, when in chapter 14, when the smoke, when the smoke of people's torment ascends, what do people do? They say hallelujah and they celebrate, right? That makes us very uncomfortable. But there, but there, is, a, there is a righteous way to celebrate the judgment of evil, right? What else? How, how else? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because if you know that the final chapter has already been written and you know that one day you're going to be resurrected and it's like, well, you know, it's like, it's, it's going to be like Daniel chapter three. Those young Hebrew men understood. It's like, well, if you burn me, God at the end of the age is just going to, is just going to gather up my, my pile of ashes that have been scattered and, and he's going to gather them up and resurrect me just as if I had never died in the first place. And same thing with, with them here. So there's all sorts of, of uh, power and encouragement and perseverance that the book of Revelation produces. Now, part three, the purpose of the book of Revelation, the purpose of the book you know, I, th- I think, not I think, it's really true that uh, one of the most important things for us to know when studying any book of the Bible is why was it written? What is the purpose of this book? What is it designed to do? And you could put it even this way, 
the entire Bible is the drama of salvation, right? This, this is God's plan for human history unfolding in the world. And with each individual book that you study, you need to ask, okay, what does this book contribute to the drama of salvation unfolding in the world? Or would it put another way, if we didn't have this book in the Bible, what would we be missing in God's eternal plan of salvation? What would, we, what would we be missing in the drama of salvation? Because again, the Bible is a story, not a fictional story. It's an absolutely true story. It's a sacred story. It's a salvation script. It's a masterpiece of redemption unfolding in human history. It has a plot, a plot that God has written in eternity past. And so here's the purpose of the book of Revelation. Revelation is, is very much designed to uh, produce radical faith, courage, allegiance, and exhilaration with Christ as God unfolds the final chapter of his plan for history. I'll say that again. Revelation is designed to produce radical faith, courage, allegiance, and exhilaration with Jesus Christ as God unfolds his final chapter of his plan for history. Radical faith, courage, allegiance, and exhilaration with Christ as God unveils the final chapter of his plan for history. So, if you want to put it most simply, Revelation was written to comfort you and strengthen you by spoiling the surprise ending of human history, which is precisely what chapter 1 tells us. So that's, the, that's very briefly the, the purpose of the book. Any questions on that so far? I know I'm flying here. I'm, I'm, I'm eager and anxious to get to the text. Any, any questions on that, though? Okay. Now look at part four there, the outline of Revelation. The outline of Revelation. Uh, I have the whole thing there for you. You notice there's a prologue at the beginning, an epilogue at the end, which makes sense. And it's, it's very interesting to me, uh, similar vocabulary in, in each of those. Uh, chapter one, we have this soul paralyzing vision of the glory of Christ. The, the glorified Christ appears to, to John in this, in this vision, which almost gives him a heart attack, uh, almost kills him. Chapters two and three are the letters to the seven churches. And then it's in chapter four through the end of the book that all of that is future. All of that is to come. Now, I just want you to know, if you are a, of a different hermeneutical, eschatological persuasion, you, you won't agree with that. I know that not everyone, maybe even this room, they, you might not agree that everything in chapter 4 through 22 is all future. That's okay. I'm not trying to trounce on your view. That's just the view we're going to have. We have to pick a view, and, and that's the view we're going to take here. So, so your view has some, uh, some uh, valid things to say also. But chapters 4 and 5 is the visitation to the throne room, which is, we're going to see towards the end, is, is really central to the rest of the book. We tend to think of chapter 19, that's, that's really big, but chapters 4 and 5 are, are, are massive. Chapters 6 through uh, 16, that's what is known as the seven-year tribulation seven-year tribulation. We'll deal with the fact, is it a literal seven years? Is it not? We'll, we'll deal with that next time we meet. Uh, I believe that it is, but we've got this seven-year uh, judgment unleashed that unfolds in three separate stages of judgment, each stage more terrifying than the last. I mean, it's very possible that at the end of the seven years, 60, 70% of the world's population is dead. I mean, this is really horrifying stuff. 
Uh, you could see there chapter 17 through 19, the destruction of what is called Babylon, which is sort of this religious political system and and then also the marriage feast of the Lamb. Chapter 19, can't wait to get to that, the return of the king, the second coming. Chapter 20 is the thousand-year reign of Christ and his saints, which we alluded to this morning in Daniel. And then you can, um, you can see the rest there. Chapter 21, new heavens and the new earth, and then the new Jerusalem. So this is very exciting stuff. What I think you'll find interesting, not I think you will find interesting totally, is uh, when we get to 20 and 21, and, and there's this, you know, as we have this breathtaking display of the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem, we walk away with this deep, powerful impression that, it's, that the eternal state is not this sort of weird, soft, you know, kind of uh, immaterial sort of thing where we're just sort of floating on clouds. No, there are there are streets and there are gates and there are kings. There are kings and they bring their tribute to the city and you eat food and there's things to do. And, and so it's very concrete. It's very tangible. It's very lifelike. Uh, I really, you know, I really believe that in the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem, there will be restaurants and stores and commerce and, and there's a city and it's a really big city and I can't wait to live there because I love big cities. And, you know, there, there's all, we will do there everything that we do here, everything that we love to enjoy here, we will enjoy there, but Christ will be at the center of all of it and there will be no sin. It's really incredible. So if you had visions of heaven where it's like, oh, well, I really like a lot of the things that I have to do now and the visions of heaven that have been, have been told to me before, that doesn't sound very appealing. Rest assured, it will be infinitely better than you think. You will do all the things that you do now. Only Christ will be there. We will eat things and say things and do things and it will, it will exceed our wildest imagination. So that's, that's an outline of the book. You can, you, know, you can use that for future reference. That's the, basically the roadmap of, of where we're going to go, okay? All right, are you ready to dive in? All right, Revelation chapter 1. Here we go. Here we go. I will do my best to condense. I will miss, have to skip and miss a bunch of stuff. And um, if there's something you're just burning in your soul, do you have a question about, you can wait to the end or you can, you can interrupt me if, if you like. Revelation chapter 1. Chapter 1 verses 1 through 8 is the prologue, the prologue, the, essentially the introduction to the book. And I want you to notice, look at verses 1 and 2. Verses 1 and 2. It begins, The revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave to him to show to his slaves what is necessary to come quickly, and he um, revealed by sending it through his angel to his slave, John, who testified the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ as many as thing, uh, uh, as much as many as things as he saw or or whatever he saw. Verse 3, blessed is the one who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and those who keep the things which have been written in it for the time is near. Now you notice there the verses 1 and 2, uh, which I'm calling the introduction and identification. Uh, notice those first three words there, the first three or four words, the revelation of Jesus Christ. There's glory in the details here. Let me think about it. What does the word of mean? The revelation of of Jesus Christ. 
Very possibly, yeah. And actually, let's back up. What does the word revelation mean? In, in, in Greek, it's the term apokalypsis, apocalypse. What does that word mean? What does apocalypse mean? Yeah, yeah, showing of something, an unveiling of something to to lay bare something, to expose something. So the revelation of Jesus Christ. And the word of could mean that Jesus Christ is the one being revealed or he is the one who is giving the revelation. I think it's I think it's B. I think it's B. I think he is the one giving the revelation here. And so I think what, what's happening here is that Christ is pulling back the curtain of the top secret plans for history, which have until now been hidden in the vault of God's infinite mind. And I want you to note, notice something here. Um, that uh, Notice that it goes, the, the revelation goes from the Father to Christ through his angel to John, who testified everything that he saw. Do you, do you see that in the text? The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show to his slaves what is necessary to come soon, which he revealed by sending it through his angel to his servant, John, who testified the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. That's a lot of hands that it's passing through here. So it's very interesting, the the chain reaction of, of passing the revelation down. And then you notice uh, verses three through six, the address and and doxology. Again, verse three, you notice there the uh, blessing pronounced on those who read it and on those who hear the words of the book. And And not only that, but not only those who hear it, but those who do what? Those who keep it. So there are things to obey here. There are things to keep here from this book. There are there are actions that Revelation is expecting you to take. And then, let's see here. Oh, it's so hard to know what to, what to choose from. Skip down to verses 4 and 5, 4 and 5, which I'm calling the Trinitarian salutation. John now addresses the recipients of his letter. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace. Notice this very carefully. Grace to you and peace from the one who is... And from the one who was, and from the one who is coming, and from the seven spirits which are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. So every New Testament letter kind of sounds similar, right? Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace, right? So this has the same thing, but this is the most elaborate introduction, the most elaborate salutation in the entire New Testament. And, and the reason why I call it a Trinitarian salutation is, is this, notice, grace and peace to you from the one who is and the one who was and the one who is coming. I believe that's the Father, I believe that describes God the Father as the one who had no beginning, who is always present as the one who will come again to complete human history. That same designation is used five times in the book of Revelation. But then, but then you notice we have next, we have not only is it from the one who was and is and is to come, but we also have grace to, and peace to you from the seven spirits of God which are before his throne. 
that's really weird. What spirits are we talking about? And I, and I do believe that this is a reference to the Holy Spirit. And here's the, here's the reason why. One of the reasons why is because in verse 5, who also is grace and peace from? What does the text say? It's, it's from Christ, right? So here's the Father, in the middle is the Spirit, and then finally it's from Christ. So it's this Trinitarian salutation. And, and the Spirit is referred to with the same sevenfold designation a handful of times. Most likely, we don't have time to get into all the, the reasons why, most likely uh, this is a reference to Zechariah 4. So this isn't the only time that the New Testament has been referred to in this sevenfold fashion. Zechariah 4 refers to the Spirit in the exact same way. So, so this, isn't, this isn't new stuff here. Um, and again, the, the number seven, you know, this is, you know, I'm always dubious and people say, well, seven is the number of perfection. Maybe, maybe I'm still actually, honestly, I'm looking for, for exegetical proof to tell me that's the case. However, I will say that the number seven, you know, could be a, a way to desc- a poetic way to describe the, the sovereign, perfect work of, of the spirit. So, um, that's, that's a, that could be a way to put that. But then again, notice the grace and peace is from Jesus Christ. And notice, notice what it calls Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth. This is majestic. This is, this is really huge to this full, I mean, this, I mean, just even think about it. How much theology, this is a weird question, unanswerable. How much theology is just in these opening verses? This is loaded. This is loaded. Jesus Christ is the faithful witness, the faithful witness. Um, what is a witness? It's, it's the Greek term martyr, which is where we get martyr from. What does it mean that Jesus Christ is the faithful witness? Does that mean that he's confirming that, yeah, you talk to me and I save you or something like that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. That's, that's a good way to put it, Don, that, that he, is, he is the one who is absolutely trustworthy. He is the one who reveals. He is the one who declares and that he is faithful, meaning that he is the one who is trustworthy. So what he says is trustworthy. You can hear it from Christ and go, you know what? That's, I, I can bank on that. Notice he's the firstborn from the dead. Firstborn meaning what? Anyone know that term pratatakos in the Greek? It's a very kind of a technical term. What does firstborn mean? Anyone know? Preeminent one, the highest one. Uh, precisely, precisely. And how do we know that, that he wasn't, that it's not saying that he was the first person to raise from the dead? Because others have. Others have risen before him, so can't mean that. And what's that? Precisely. Exactly, exactly. So just have you know, um, you know, that the term occurs uh, in Hebrews 11 to describe Jacob, right? And uh, Esau was, was actually the firstborn, right? He was actually the firstborn technically, but he didn't get that title of Pratatakas. He wasn't the firstborn because he wasn't the one who inherited the promises. Jacob received those. So it's a term of dignity. It's a term of rank. It's a term of supremacy. The most important person in the universe has risen from the dead. 
And then notice, he is the ruler of the kings of the earth. This is extremely good news for a persecuted people who have this psychopath on the, the throne of the Roman Empire. Jesus Christ rules the kings of the earth. He rules them. He has supremacy over them. I mean, this, this whole thing is extremely just loaded with theology designed to sustain them. Around 15 times in Revelation, kings and world governments are, are spoken of. And so Revelation wants us to know at the outset that Jesus Christ rules all of the kings of the earth. And then you notice verses 5 and 6. It's the, the uh, benediction. So the, you know, now to him who is able, you know, kind of one of these things, look at verses five and six, to the one, to him who loves us and who released us from our sins by his blood and who made us a kingdom and priest to his God and father, to him is the glory and the dominion unto the ages of the ages. Amen. And so it's interesting that although the book Revelation is profoundly Trinitarian, it's also very Christocentric in its outlook also, right? We are, fancy term, we are Trinitarian Christocentrists. That means we, we hold to the Trinity, and yet we are Christocentric in our outlook. Christ has a, a special focus on our faith. He loves us. He released us from our sins by his blood. And then the main verb there is in verse six, where it says, he made us a kingdom priests to his God and Father. So the, the emphasis there, the sort of the neon lights there in the text is that John wants us to know that what Christ has done, the, the culminating work that Christ will accomplish is that he will make us a kingdom. Now, whether you interpret it as the literal, actual, physical kingdom on this planet, which I do, uh, or if you take that another way, Either way, the culminating work will be that he has made us a kingdom. Several references are throughout the book of Revelation that we will co-reign with Christ. We will rule with him. That's very interesting. And then notice, notice what's interesting. It goes all the way, uh, right immediately in verse 7. Um, it, it has this benediction in verses 5 and 6. And then all of a sudden, without any transition, Look at verse seven. Behold, it just, just inserts that. Behold, he is coming with the cloud of heaven and every eye shall see him and those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth shall mourn over him. Yes, amen. Do you know what verse seven is? That's the, that's the purpose statement of the entire book. That's what verses seven is doing. And, and the fact that it doesn't have any sort of like, you know, uh, transition words, it just, just, juts in, behold, it's the element of surprise. So John uses grammar to explain to us how it'll feel when Christ returns. And so verse seven is very much the purpose statement of the book, namely that Christ is coming and every eye will see him and those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth shall mourn over him. And so the entirety of the Old Testament is looking forward to this moment when the Messiah would come and, and reign on the earth. Okay, now verses 9 through 20. 9 through 20. This is easily one of my favorite sections in, in all of Scripture. Verses 9 through 20, John not only um, identifies his recipients of the letter, which are the seven churches in, in Asia Minor, 
but also, and he, he explains the situation. Look at verse nine. I, John, your brother and sharer in the tribulation and in the kingdom and in the in perseverance in Jesus was on the island called Patmos. Why? On account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. It's very interesting. There are about four or five times where it talks about people being persecuted for the word of God. So those days are coming for us. Those days are coming for when we, there, will be, there will be penalties if we're going to uphold and affirm this book or not. That those, those days are coming. The word of God matters. Verse 10, he says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me uh, a great voice as of a trumpet. Um, you know, I, I don't know how you feel when, when you get scared, but when, when someone deliberately comes behind me and, you know, ha, you know, tries to scare me, it always, it always kind of, you know, you ever, anyone else get mad when they get scared? I get mad when I get scared. This was so loud and terrifying that, that John wasn't able to get mad. That you shouldn't do this to people. This, this poor elderly man, and there's this blast of a trumpet behind him, and it was not a trumpet, it was someone's voice. And the instructions are, I want you to write what you're about to see in a book, and I want you to send it to these churches. And so John does the most obvious thing, verses 12 and following. He turns, and notice what it says, I turned to see the voice which was speaking with me. And after turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, which will be explained. And in the midst of the lampstands was one like a what? A son of man. Where, where is that alluding to? Where else in the Bible? Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. That's exactly what's also being referenced in chapter 7. I saw one like a son of man, having been clothed, reaching to the feet, and girded to the chest with a golden sash, and his hair and his head were white as white wool, uh, as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire, and his feet were like burnished bronze as in a furnace, having been made to glow, and his voice was like the sound of many waters, and he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of, it, and, uh, out of his mouth was a sharp two-edged sword coming out, and his face was as the sun shining in its power. I mean, this is overwhelming. This is overwhelming. And so there's this, this vision of the glorified Christ. And the, the seven golden lampstands in, in verse 20, that's explained as a picture of the seven churches. There are implications of the fact that, that churches are called lampstands. Then the Son of Man. Again, the Son of Man has connotations of a sovereign ruling king. He's clothed with a robe, reaching to the feet, which could give the idea of dignity and supremacy. A golden sash around his chest, not tinkly gold fabric, but it might be better to view that as a heavyweight championship belt of gold around his waist. Head and hair like white wool, this could refer to his infinite wisdom and insight as the sovereign of the universe. Eyes like a flame of fire, piercing, penetrating vision, able to see the very secrets of the heart. Feet like burnished bronze, this could be a, a military reference, his right and power to judge. Voice like many waters, we hear little kids and they don't have very strong voices and we could hear their voice and go, you know what, that's not a big person. This voice is big. This voice is big. You know, picture, you know, imagine, you know, the 400 million gallons of the Pacific Ocean in a hurricane. That's his voice, which indicates that he is sovereign and invincible. 
seven stars in his right hand. Those are the angels or the messengers of the seven churches, a sharp two-edged sword coming out of his mouth, um, which is an instrument of judgment and death. That's that's an allusion to Isaiah chapter four. His face shining like the sun, maybe a picture of his his infinite worth and value. And so, so put it together. You have burning lamps, blinding stars, roaring oceans, a face like staring into the heart of the sun. No wonder John almost died from looking at this. This is incredible. And, uh, you know, and, and by the way, all of these pictures, there, there are all sort of glimpses of these in the Old Testament. So just so you know, if you really want to know the book of Revelation well, you need to know the Old Testament. And, and there are a lot of pictures here already to the Old Testament. Now, let me, let me ask you this. Why would you suspect that Christ would reveal himself in this way to John at the beginning of the letter? What would be the, the implication? What would be the point of this? What would this produce for him and for us? Absolutely. Absolutely. Appropriate terror. Confidence. Yeah, how so? Well, if this is the risen Christ, who's going to stand against him? Precisely. Absolutely. I mean, it's like, uh, there's no one going to stand to that. I mean, I mean, imagine, you know, the rulers of this world who, you know, who flatter themselves, you know, with, with their power and yet, and yet, um, messing themselves when they stand before this, right? Yeah. 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 It's an interesting juxtaposition, right? An interesting contrast. It's like, wow, I, I used to have dinner with him, and, and I, I laid my head on his chest, and I looked up in his eyes. You know, John was a kind of a, a teenager at the time, and, and yet here he is, you know, unfiltered glory of the Son of Man. And, and so as th- this is the one who is the Lord of the church, the Lord of the church. What's really interesting is that uh, each of these characteristics, pictures of who Christ is and what he looks like will be repeated throughout the seven letters to the churches. So, so it's very interesting. These will find their way and repeated also in, in chapter 19. So absolutely what it does is give us confidence. It gr- gives us appropriate terror. Uh, a, a, uh, to tremble before him as the, as the treasure of the soul. This is the invincible one. This is the unconquerable one. This is the unshakable one. This is incredible. I think it's very interesting uh, that chapter 17, he, or not chapter 17, verse 17, uh, what, what does John do? He falls to his face like a dead man. Unbelievable. I mean, he almost died. We see the same thing in the book of Isaiah. We see the same thing in Ezekiel. Uh, we see the same thing in Judges 13, 20, and 21. People see God and like, I'm, this is too, I'm going to die. I'm, I, I am going to die. My eyes have seen the king. I, I can't, it's, it's too much for me. And he falls on the ground at a coma. Christ places his right hand on him and he says, do not fear. I am the first and the last. It's interesting that he comforts him with more theology. 
I am the first and the last. And behold, I am alive forever and ever. I was dead. Now I am alive. And notice this. I hold the keys of death and Hades. That's unbelievable. We are all going to die. And I'm not particularly excited about that. And uh, yet, yet, we need to comfort ourselves with the fact of, you know what? Jesus Christ holds the keys of death. It just unlocks it. You know, death is not the end. He has power over it. And then he gives him instructions, write what you see, write what you see. And then he explains the mystery of the seven stars, which are the churches, and then the lampstands, um, and the, the, the messengers, angels of the churches, and then the, the lampstands are the churches themselves. What is the significance of the fact that, that churches are, are referred to as lampstands? What is that? Probably something like that. Yeah, what else? Lamp stands. Why that? Lamps give light, right? So there, there's some sense in which we give off light, and, and there are some churches that still function, and yet they don't have lamp stands. I, I don't always know how you, well, there are certain ways to identify if, if a church, although functioning and maybe even thriving, might not have a lamp stand. That's kind of a scary reality. But you know, I, I think that this, this metaphor can be extended to all churches. All churches uh, either have lampstand or they, or they don't. <coughs> but that brings us to, to chapters 2 and 3, which are the letters to the seven churches. The letters to the seven churches. And, and this is just loaded. This is, this is really loaded. Here's what's interesting is there's these seven churches. And why just these seven? Why just these seven in, these, in this particular area of Asia Minor? And I think the reality is, is that these seven churches could cover enough issues that will be representative of uh, many of, of all churches and the kinds of issues that they will face. So, so it's not the only thing that you would use to want to be a kind of healthy church, but but if you want to be a healthy church, you could study chapters 2 and 3, and you could learn what kind of church to be and what church to not be. And now here, here there, there are characteristics of these, of these letters here. Let me do something. Are the characteristics of the letters in your notes? Do I have that in there? Okay, good. So I will, I will write these down for you. This is kind of interesting. So the letters have a formula to them. They, they each have certain recurring, repeated features in each of them, which are which are really fascinating. So uh, each letter has an opening address. In other words, they are addressed by Christ. Uh, next, each letter has attributes of Christ. In other words, in every letter, uh, Christ, uh, there is something said about Christ taken from chapter one. It'll list some things. And here's what's really interesting is that whatever attributes in each of the letters are listed, it's because those letters, uh, those attributes apply in some way to that situation of that church. So when Christ only mentions to one of the, one of the churches that he has a sword, do you think that's good or bad? That's pro- you know, dear Pergamum, I have a sword. Okay, you know, it's like putting a gun on the table. Ah, we're going to have a talk. Whoa. Okay, so, uh, so whatever attributes are, it's, it's in a reference in some way to the situation um, of the church. Number three, and again, th- there are variations on this. Not every, it's not super cookie cutter, but this is generally what each of, they have, each of, them, what each of them have. Uh, there's this assertion by Christ. 
that he says, in every single letter, he says, I know. I know this about you. I know what you're going through. I know who you are. He says that in every single letter, and he uses the Greek term oida, which means I know. Did you know that? Okay, and then uh, number four, number four, uh, he makes uh, either a commendation or a condemnation Uh, usually both, sometimes one or the other. There's a couple churches that only get commendations, commendations, kudos, good job. There are a couple churches, they only get condemnations, not so good. Okay. Number five, each letter uh, uh, has a call to persevere. Uh, every letter has a promise of the Lord's coming. Um, every letter has a universal command to hear. Uh, so every letter ends with the one who has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, plural, meaning not only these churches, but every church throughout history. We need to listen to these seven letters. So a command to hear. Number eight. Uh, And then number eight is a promise to the overcomer. Promise to the overcomer. So, which is, which is really urgent, you know, if, if there's, you know, in every, at, the, at every letter there is, to the one who conquers, to the one who perseveres to the end. This is very urgent. Every letter is filled with, keep going, keep going, don't give up, don't give up, don't, don't lax in your faith, don't grow despondent, don't grow lax, don't grow apathetic, don't grow stagnant, don't grow cold, don't do that, stay focused, stay clinging, stay dependent, hold fast to what you have. If you don't, you won't make it to the end, and if you don't make it to the end, you won't be in the paradise of God. There's these really urgent calls to, to persevere and to cling to Christ and hold fast to what you have. So again, there are variations of this in every letter. They don't always work out that clean, but that's generally sort of the, uh, the, the pattern for each one. Okay, all right, let's look at the churches kind of one by one. Any, any questions so far? Uh, chapter one, vision of the glorified Christ, now the transition to the churches. Any questions at all? Is this what you're hoping to get out of this? I'm really having a lot of fun with this. I hope, I hope you are. All right, all right. Okay, uh, the first church is the Church of Ephesus. The Church of Ephesus, which I'm calling the Church of Loveless Orthodoxy. The Church of Loveless Orthodoxy. And you could just see, with each one of these letters, whatever their crime is, whatever the situation is that they're in, you could totally tell how a church could become that. It, 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 the compromise starts small, the things that make a church grow cold, it starts with little things at the beginning and it grows over time and, and it's that whole phenomenon where you don't even notice it until it's almost too late, until you have to get a letter like this from Christ and it's like, oh, how long have we been this way? 
But the church in Ephesus, um, what's really interesting is they, this church had a lot going for them, right? This church had a lot going for them. They, they labored in ministry. They persevered in persecution. They wouldn't tolerate immorality. They wouldn't endure false teaching. I mean, they, they were a church that wouldn't quit no matter the opposition. I mean, frankly, I would, there's a lot of things about the Ephesian church that makes me want to join it. I want to be a part of this church. Uh, that's the summary. Here's the attribute. Notice in verse 2, the attribute that's mentioned about Christ. The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks in the midst of the golden lampstands, says this. Notice that. Notice. The one who holds the seven stars in his hand. Again, the stars are pictures of the seven angels or the seven messengers of the churches. There's a whole debate on, you know, what these uh, messengers or or angels are. Um, I don't even know if I have a... I used to think they were not angelic beings, that they were only human messengers. Now I'm like, I don't, I don't know. They they could be angelic beings too, but I'm leaning towards that. They are, they are human beings. Anyway, uh, I'm not, I'm not settled on that yet, but uh, verse two, he holds the leaders of the churches. So if it's human beings, I think that it's that he holds the leaders of churches in his hand. Like that's that description. And then when it says, notice he is the one literally the one who is walking in the midst of the golden lampstands. So notice the picture. If the lamp, and what, what do the lampstands represent? Churches. And, and I always get the picture of this. Picture the, the lampstands across, and then Christ is looking at the lampstands. Hmm. Okay. You know, and he's inspecting each one of them. What's the, what's the picture being communicated? The one who walks among the golden lampstands. What's being communicated there? Evaluation. Evaluation. What else? Potentially. Presence. Presence. He's there. He is among us. I mean, think about it. If we are a church, and we are, and if we have a lampstand, and I think we do, Christ walks among us. This is Christ's church. This is his, he, he, he is always in evaluation mode, looking, watching, critiquing, right? And so he is assessing, watching, evaluating, caring for each church. And, and it also means what is hidden from Christ's view? Nothing. Everything about this church, everything about our lives is open, plain sight to his piercing, penetrating vision. Remember, he has eyes like lamps of burning fire. He sees everything that happens in the church. This is his church. All things are open and laid bare. Again, there's, there's lots of things to commend them for, verse 2, but there's one condemnation, and it's a biggie, right? I mean, this is like the classic, infamous condemnation of a church. Verse 4, but I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Ouch. It's really brief in the Greek, kind of terse. And I think it's really interesting that verses two and three, he just commends them for thing after thing after thing after thing. And those things are still valid. It's not like, it's not like verse four just undoes those. Yeah, I mean, there's all these things, but you know what? They don't matter. They do matter. But verse four, just gently and yet potently you know, I mean, it's, it's sort of like, you know, when someone's having a conversation with you, it's like, you know what, Tommy, I really like you. 
you're a sweet guy and you've always been an encouragement to me and, and you've always loved me and supported me from the day I got here and I'm grateful for your giftedness and your ability to teach and exhort and encourage people and man, I just, I just don't know what I would do without you. But, but, I got something to say to you. That's, that's the force, right? Well, I don't actually, we're okay. Um, so, so, any idea what he means when he says you have left your first love? That's a, that's a whopper, isn't it? Lost their enthusiasm? Lost their enthusiasm? Mm-hmm. What's that? Probably something like that is the case, right? So yes, Charles, they lost their enthusiasm for the one they should be most enthusiastic about, the one who is the centerpiece of their faith, the one who makes all life and ministry and theology and doctrine and study and, and ministry and perseverance and labor most meaningful, namely Jesus Christ himself savoring him and, and treasuring him and loving him and adoring him and having affection for him and having allegiance to him above all things, that he is the be all end all of why we exist right? And you could totally tell how it would be so easy to be a zealous, doctrinally sound, moral church, and we're not really that excited about Christ, right? It's totally possible. And, you know, it's, you know, and that's a, that's a rebuke to me too, because I love ministry and I love doctrine. And, and, and yet we have to make sure that we love the one about whom that doctrine testifies, It, it, absolutely. She said, could it be like making ministry an idol? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, and you could just see it's like, you know, a church becomes good at something and they kind of develop a legacy and then ministry, all of church life becomes about perpetuating that kind of one niche thing that they're really good at and every, all resources are poured into that thing. And then after a while that, you know, it's very easy to lose sight of, ah, you know what, you know what? We exist to prize the supremacy of Christ. That's first on the list. We exist to prize the supremacy of Christ. So all sorts of of implications there. Man, hold fast to Christ, right? Hold fast to him. Be meditating in his word day and night. Keep him first. Be, Be radically dependent. You know, again, remember the things that cause you to pray. You are helpless. He is glorious. Prayer is how he exhibits his glory. Remember your, your inherent poverty and bankruptcy and to make you needy and dependent upon him. Again, the only way that we can grow in our affection for Christ is, is day by day meditation upon his word, right? That's, that's it. Verse 5 is the, is the uh, call to persevere or to repent. Okay, I should have put call to persevere or repent. Uh, verse 5 Uh, remember, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do your first works. That's what he says, literally, do your first works or the deeds which you did at first. If not, if you don't do that, I'm going to come to you and I'm going to remove your lampstand out of its place. And I think what that means is is maybe their, their doors wouldn't close physically, but the Christ-exalting influence of that church would be removed. That'd be just an empty shell of a church. And we see these churches without in any way exalting ourselves over them. We should tremble when we think about churches that they're just there and there's not really anything going on and they're, and they're slowly dying and disappearing into obscurity. Again, I'm not making any judgment calls. I'm just saying, ah, it makes me wonder. 
makes me wonder. You know, they would lose their Christ-exalting influence. Yeah, Rich. In the text it says, uh, do the works you did at first. Mm -hmm. So what works would you, say, associate with um, the first love that they've lost? So what what works are associated with that, the the love of Christ Mm. and the excitement of that? Generally speaking, the first works, if you heard his question, what are the first works that will be associated with your first love? And I think it would be all of the kinds of zealous actions that would be an overflow of a supreme love for Christ. Probably chief among those, I mean, you you read 1 John and you get the real sense of like, man, love and care for one another would be an, an obvious sign, right? So Christ doesn't say if that wasn't happening, but you just wonder, it's like, do the things you did at first when you loved Christ, do those things, you know, you, you wonder if, if they had become an academic church. Again, I don't know. He doesn't tell us everything. But again, they held fast to doctrine, but they had departed from their first love. So maybe a merely academic church, maybe a church that was um, really down the line doctrinally, but there wasn't a lot of affection for one another. I mean, you just wonder if those are the kinds of things. So I think you could fill in the blanks from the New Testament and say, well, what are the works that should overflow out of a supreme delight in Christ? There'd probably be those, those kinds of things. I think it's really interesting, verse 6. This you have, though. Just, just so you know, there's one thing I'm, I'm, I'm happy about with you. Verse 6, that you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. The Nicolaitans were like a cult fringe group, um, odd kind of stuff that they had. We don't really know a lot about them. Um, there's all sorts of rumors about you know who Nicholas could be probably turned into Santa Claus. I'm just kidding. Just kidding. <laughs> just a joke. Just a joke. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, so it was this kind of cult group. They probably had some funky ideas about Christology. And again, it's hard to say. But again, he commends them. So his answer is, okay, I'm not saying stop caring about right doctrine because I'm going to affirm you in your holding fast to right doctrine even there in verse 6. Still hate what they do and still hate what they believe. And so he commends them for that too. And then verse seven, let the one who hears, what the, uh, the one who has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And here's the uh, promise to the overcomer. To the one who overcomes, I shall give to him to eat from the tree of life. That's really fascinating, isn't it? You wonder, okay, what was, what was the tree that Adam and Eve ate from? Mm, you'll taste it one day. You'll taste it. You'll, you'll get that. And again, what's really interesting is the promises to the overcomer are, many of them are echoed in chapters 21 and 22. So, so these things are alluded to. Also, a lot of these things that are promised to overcomers are also alluded to in the Old Testament as well. So there's sort of these echoes from the Old Testament and in chapters 21 and 22. So if you want to know what all of those things are, is uh, you uh, read the Old Testament well and 21 and 22. Okay, so, so much more that we could say. Um, the next church is uh, the church of Smyrna, which is the church of martyrdom. And again, I'm going to go real fast, okay? I'm going to go really fast through these. I'll give you the summary of the church, the church of Smyrna, which I'm calling the church of martyrdom, the church of martyrdom. So, oh, also, another thing that's, that's really um, intriguing about this letter is that the order in which the churches are written follow the exact postal route of the ancient world. 
So when you had packages to deliver in Asia Minor, this is the order in which you go. There was an actual route in, if you could picture Turkey, sort of this, you know, Michigan on its side. Uh, there were these, these letters and, or these cities, and you would travel in sort of this circular fashion to get to, so it's written in that order. It's really pretty intriguing. But Smyrna, uh, the church of martyrdom, was 30, uh, 35, 40 miles north of Ephesus. So we're, we're going up now in our little loop pattern. And they had endured hostility and persecution from, from violent Jews. So uh, Smyrna was not an easy place to, to live. There was lots of hostility. Christ's evaluation of these Jews, do you, do you remember what Christ's evaluation? He said that they belonged to what kind of synagogue? Synagogue of Satan. Yikes. Yikes. Wow, that's, that's you know, that, that would be heralded as, as anti-Semitic today. You belong to the synagogue of Satan. Um, and so Christ seeks to encourage these people. He and seeks to encourage them. And what's really interesting is the letter, he, in the letter, he tells them in, oh golly, where is it? Um, oh yeah, verse 10, look 10. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison and you shall be tested and you shall suffer affliction for 10 days. You could spiritualize that if you want. I don't think you have permission to do that. But I think he's literally talking about there are 10 days coming that are going to be so bad, I feel like I have to warn you about them. 10 days of persecution and some of you are going to die. Just, just warning you. That's, that's crazy. That's crazy. But notice what he says, be faithful until death and I will give you the crown of life. The crown of life is a symbol of reward. It's a, it's a, it's a promise of, that, that we, that, uh, of reward at the end. And so they can chop off our heads if they want. They could burn us in, in a fiery oven if they so please. But, but hold fast. Do not deny. Hold fast to me until the end. And I will give you the crown of life. This is real. These are, these are real people. These are real, they really suffered. Uh, next, next church, again, I'm, you know, I want to, say more, but the church of Pergamum, the church of Pergamum, which, which I'm calling the church of compromise, the church of compromise. So here we are 55 miles north of Smyrna. So, so here's Ephesus, 40 miles north is Smyrna. And then another, you know, uh, what is it? A 55, 55 miles north of Smyrna is Pergamum. And, and does anyone know uh, what was the export, the major thing that Pergamum exported to the rest of the Roman Empire? Do you remember their, their major product that they were known for? Paper, per, so parchment. So they were the mass producers of, of parchment. They were like the Dunder Mifflin of, of the ancient world. And uh, this, uh, this church, uh, you know, you could tell from the letter, this church was once a, a stronghold in the face of persecution. But over time, they, they, they wore down. They got weak. They caved in their theological convictions. They had given away to syncretism. Does anyone know what syncretism is? What's syncretism? You, you saw this right? In Africa, syncretism. That's when you take the different religious beliefs and you kind of just make them part of yours. Yeah, just absorb them, right? Which we see in Catholicism all over the world, you know, just sort of like syncretism kind of stuff. Uh, they were allowing the toxic waste of immorality to, to fill their church and it was growing and spreading. And then here, and again, notice chapter two, verse 12. Again, each attribute of Christ that he mentions relates in some way to the situation in that church. Look at chapter two, verse 12. Uh, to the uh, angel or messenger of the church in Pergamum write, the one who has a sharp two-edged sword says this. Ooh, 
Okay. The only thing, the only thing I want you to remember about me right now is that I've got a sword and I kill people with it, right? So this is, this is really, really serious. Um, and again, you know, there's, there's all sorts of immorality and, and um, you know, things happening, you know, verses uh, 14 and 15, you know, people holding to the teaching of Balak, who put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel. So there's immorality. And when it talks about eating things, sacrifice to idols, that, that's, that's probably a reference to syncretism, that, that whole thing. And... Um, and then in verse 15, thus you have, uh, you also have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Remember them from Ephesus? Hey, I love that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. He couldn't say that about Pergamum. They, they had bought into whatever it is that the Nicolaitans were doing. And, and notice what he says, verse 16, really serious. Repent, therefore. But if not, what does he say he's going to do? This is why he mentioned the sword. Yeah, I'm going to wage war with the sword from my mouth. He, he's threatening. He's threatening to, to kill them. Judgment at you know likely at the end of the age, if not judgment in, in this life. So this is big. This is big. And you know we might think, okay, well, would would Christ operate that way in today's churches? I don't think there's any reason why he wouldn't. Right? This is this is big. Okay, next church, the church of Thyatira. The church of Thyatira. There's a lot of churches not encouraging. The kind of churches you should not go to. Thyatira, which I'm calling the church of, of toleration. The church of toleration. Interestingly, this is the smallest of the seven churches, and yet it's the longest letter. He has the most to say to them. And uh, situated 40 miles southeast of Pergamum. So we went from Ephesus to Smyrna to Pergamum, and then um, down here a little bit into, uh, into Thyatira. And, and this church, what was interesting is the area was rich in agricultural abundance. I mean, if you wanted to be a farmer, I mean, this was like a great place to go, but this place was bankrupt in spiritual authenticity. So they had been tolerating a, a wicked false prophetess. They had a woman in her, in her church and he, and I don't think this was, this wasn't her real name, but you know, he, what, do you remember what, what name Christ calls her? Jezebel. Okay, you, you, don't, you don't name people Judas and you don't name little girls Jezebel, right? And so there's this, there's this lady, Christ calls her Jezebel, and it's like, you have Jezebel in your church. And, and the, same, the same accusation is eating things sacrificed to idols, immorality. I think she was a false prophetess and I think she was sleeping with people who were following her. I mean, this is a mess, man. Gruesome, gruesome stuff. I was like, will this ever happen? It has happened. This, this kind of stuff takes place in, in places that call themselves churches. And so Christ has very strong, uh, very strong words for this church. Verse 22, I am about to cast her. Literally, it just says in the Greek text, I'm about to cast her, that is Jezebel, it, onto a bed. And, and I think he means a sick bed. I, I'm, I'm going to put her on a bed of, of judgment and those who commit adultery, w- adultery with her into a great affliction unless they should repent from her works. I think it's really interesting. He doesn't offer her an opportunity to repent, just those who had been swept up in her teaching. And then this is, this is crazy. Verse 23, and her children I shall kill with death. <sighs> Golly, I mean, imagine getting a letter like this. I mean, could you, and, and here's the thing about this letter. This, this letter circulated to all the cities, right? And I, I think what happened on that particular church service, they'd get the letter in the mail. 
oh, we got a letter from, from John. We're going to read it this Sunday. And the entire service consisted in the reading of this letter. And everyone's kind of waiting. Oh, oh, hey, oh, Thyatira, it's our turn. It's our turn. By the way, some of you I'm going to kill with death. I mean, could you imagine the, the, the I mean, you could hear a pin drop in that place. It was, this is crazy. But notice, notice, uh, and some of her children I shall kill with death. And notice, uh, what would be the result of that? Verse 24, all the churches will know that I am the one who searches minds and hearts, and I give to each one according to your works. In other words, Christ was going to preserve the the holiness of his church. He was going to let people know. It's like, look, I I don't take this lightly. This is a, I'm serious about this. This is my church, and I take it serious. And, and if I have to, I'll kill the people inside. That's what, he's, that's what he's saying. This is weighty stuff, isn't it? And so he uh, calls them to, to persevere. I think it's really interesting in verses 26 through 28, the, the thing that he promises to the overcomer. Look what he says. Um, uh, the, the one who overcomes and the one who keeps my works until the end, I shall give to him authority over the nations. And he shall rule them with an iron rod and, um, and uh, will shatter them as the potter's vessels, as I also received from my father, and I shall give to him the bright morning star. So do, do, now notice this, verse 26 those who persevere to the end, those who hold fast, don't, those who don't apostatize and drift, that they stay connected to me, those who persevere to the end, I will give them authority over the nations. One day, Christ will give you authority over the nations. And then verse 27, he, you, you will rule them with a rod of iron. He's, he's promising them a, a seat at the table to co-reign with him. Where does that language, where, where is that language taken from in verse 27? What place in the Old Testament? Psalm 2. That, that psalm is originally about the Messiah, the Messiah. And Christ extends that language to those who follow him and says, you, you will co-reign with me if you persevere to the end. I think that's a reference to the kingdom at, at the end of the age, which will be physical and global and, and on the planet. And, you know, it's, there's this, you know, there'll be opportunities to serve in leadership capacity in that kingdom. All right, chapter three, chapter three. Missing so many things that I want to I want to talk about here, but you get how it goes. Chapter three. Actually, you know what? Here's what we'll do. Uh, why, don't t- why don't we take a break here? That's that'll be a good place. We've got a half hour ish left. Five minutes, and I mean it. Okay, uh, five minutes. We'll come back. We'll finish the churches, and then we'll we'll spend some time in chapters four and five. Okay, break. Come back in five minutes. Six thirty-seven. I'm starting whether you're here or not. Okay. So, uh, again, we are going in a loop, right? So located 33 miles south of Thyatira, uh, Sardis uh, was strategically located geographically. It was a wealthy city, a city of wealth and affluence over which military victory was, was almost impossible. It was situated on a pretty rugged hilltop. And when you're on the top of the hill, you have the advantage, right? It's really hard to conquer something when trying to go uphill. So they were very safe. So this, this is a great place to, to raise a family. I mean, it was, it was well to do, it was safe from invasion. And, uh, the, and, and the thing is that the problem with the church in Sardis is that they were delusional. 
They were delusional. They, they thought they were vibrant and thriving at the church, and yet, and yet nothing could be further from the truth. They had drifted into spiritual apathy. It was just a cultural thing, just a cultural thing from them. Notice the attribute of Christ in chapter 3, verse 1. The one who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says these things. So if the seven spirits of God, which are sent through all the earth, if, if that's a, you know, a, a reference to the you know, infinite, inexhaustible knowledge of God, then that just goes to show that Christ could see what this church was really made of. He could see really who they were. They thought they were vibrant and thriving and so mature, and yet that just was not not the truth. His condemnation is, notice what it says, I know... I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, and yet you are dead. Everybody thinks you're a great church. Everyone speaks well of you. Oh, man, the church of Sardis, they are, they are a happening place, man. This church is, you know, they are thriving and lots of really great things. And Christ says, you know what? I know everyone talks well about you, but you know what? You're dead. Oh, wow. Okay. And then there's the call to change. Verse 3. Remember, remember how you received at first. Literally says, remember how you received. Remember how you received the gospel. And, and you heard, and, and then he says, and keep, and keep those things, and, and repent. And he says, and if you should not be alert or, or watchful, I shall come as a thief, and you shall never know what time I shall come to you. And so he's warning them. He's like, look, there's, there, there are warnings here that there are people who spiritually, they're, they're delusional. They might not actually be saved. He's warning them that he's going to come, and, and they do not want to be found in the present condition they are when he arrives. So it's a very sober warning here. Verse 4, this, you have a few names in Sardis which have not literally, it's kind of gross, soiled their garments, probably refers to that, and they shall walk with me in white because they are worthy. And then the, the promise to the overcomer, the one who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments and I shall not blot their name out of the book of life and I shall confess his name before my father and before the holy angels. We, you know, we had a, a, a good conversation about this several months ago when we talked about the doctrines of grace. What does it mean when Christ promises that he will not, actually there, there's three things here. If they persevere to the, to the end, three things are going to happen. They'll be clothed in white garments. Their names will not be blotted out of the book of life and their name will be confessed before the father and the angels. So if they persevere to the end, they will be clothed in white garments, referring to the, you know, their final justification at the end of the age. Uh, their name not blotted out of the book of life. This is probably one of the most challenging statements in, in all of the letters. Um, I, I agree with Jeff now. I, I, I pushed back when, when uh, several months ago when he said, I think it's the book of life of the Lamb in, in chapter 14. And I said, I don't think so. There's other references to a different kind of book of life. And, and, and yet I think I've swung your direction. I, th- I think it is. Um, he's like, yeah, try to do that. Um, no, no, it was good. It was, it, was a good, it was a good conversation. I think it is referring to the, the book of life. But the question is, what does it mean to not be blotted out of it. And again, this is, this is, this is really challenging. The, again, the book of life, now someone tell me about the Lamb's book of life. What, what is it? What does it consist of? Names of believers. When were their names written there? 
Yeah, and, and what, what is the significance of those names? What, uh, again, what uh, the significance is, the, it's the book of the life of the Lamb who was slain. The book indicates who the Father chose to be purchased by the Lamb. Right? That's the significance of the book. So what does it mean then that their names, that he won't blot their names out of the book of life? And so I think you could say this again, just so you know, the, the answer, the full-fledged answer would, would, you know, if we had more minutes, we could take time to do it. I think the most simplest way to say this is that very simply, it is a call to persevere to the end. At, at the very least, that, that's what he's doing. Again, I'm not trying to dodge what it means. I just think that this is, this is what it's designed to do, is to call people to persevere in the end. You know, this is a, uh, a provocative way to say that salvation is certain and guaranteed, but it is only certain and guaranteed to those who persevere until the end. And we know that if you authentically belong to Christ, you will persevere until the end. So I think that their names, uh, and and again, I think the idea is not that someone can lose their salvation. We're not saying that, Um, nor are we saying that their name actually could be erased out of the Lamb's Book of Life. Rather, the sense seems to be that those who are erased are members of the Sardian church who, who who, uh, how do I put it here, who failed to remain true to Christ. But in another way, they are erased in the sense, not that they lose their salvation, but that they prove themselves over time to be without genuine salvation, um, like many in the book of Revelation who become apostate. So um, again, that, that's not super clear, and I want to take more time to, to rewrite that one day. But I think what this is, is a dramatic way to call them to persevere to the end. I think that's, I think that's the, the effect of this. Again, I, I kind of botched that. We could talk more about that if you like. Uh, yeah? Right, which, which has some, some merit there, right? At the very least, he says he won't do that. You know, and, and I think that means that those who, don't, who aren't saved in the end, their names never were there in the first place. I think that would be a conclusion. Again, it's a, it's a tough... It's a tough text. It's challenging. But when you have texts like this, which seem to leave open the possibility, like, well, is he saying that? Well, no, I don't think he's saying that at all, that people would, you know, because Christ paid for those people. He paid for them. He's not going to go back on that payment. I think the issue is, is that those who do not persevere demonstrate themselves to, to never have been written there in the first place. I think that would be the issue. The Church of Philadelphia. Hey, look at that. We're making a good time here. The Church of Philadelphia, which I'm calling the Church of Promised Deliverance. I love the Church of Philadelphia. This is a, and it's not Pennsylvania, okay? Um, it's the Church of Asia Minor. Rich hates Philadelphia, by the way. I, it's just, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Church of Brotherly Love, man. Uh, so what's really interesting is that, is that Philadelphia is the only church besides Smyrna that receives only condemnation, co- only commendation. There's no condemnations here. He has nothing bad to say about the church in, in Philadelphia. Philadelphia was a healthy church. They're experiencing intense hostility, persecution from the Jews, and, and Christ only provides encouragements to empower them, to persevere, to stay true to the end. And, and notice... Notice what he says here, that the attribute of Christ, oh, where am I here? 
uh, verse 7, chapter 3, verse 7. He says, the holy one, the true one, the one who has the key of David, the one who opens and no one shall close, and the one who closes and no one shall open says this. And what's, what's really interesting is that all of those things are messianic metaphors. Each one of those things can be found in the Old Testament. The key of David, that's, I think that's Revelation, or Isaiah 26, I think, 27. Um, so all of these things are, are messianic promises, which is really interesting that Christ uses such Jewish messianic language to speak to the Philadelphians in a situation who are being persecuted by Jews. The, the situation here is, is, is really staggering. Uh, verse 8, I know your works, and behold, behold, I have given before you a door having been opened, which no one is able to close. And, and, and you have, and there's various ways to interpret this, you have a little power. And I don't think that's an insult. I think, I think, he's, I think he's commending them. They were not, I think the point is, you're not an impressive church, but man, you're a hearty church. Man, this thing is doing that thing again. I guess we'll have to get a, another cord again. Uh, if it keeps doing it, then I'll take the handheld. Um, or, or one of the, Alex, if you want to grab one of the, the lapel one. Uh, where was I here? Uh, yeah, so I think he's commending them. You know, they were not a big church. They were not a flashy church. They had a little power, and, and yet he commends them for it. Verse 9, notice this. The, the grammar might be, this might be different from, from what your English version says, but, but literally says, Behold, I am giving you some from the synagogue of Satan, who call themselves Jews, but they are not. They are liars. And I, behold, I shall make them come, and they shall bow down before your feet, and they shall know that I loved you. So what does he mean when he says, I am giving you some from the synagogue of Satan and I'm going to make them come and they're going to bow down to you. I think he's talking about that some of these Jews are going to get converted. I think he's extending the promise that there's going to be some of these Jews who are hostile now and persecute them now. I think he's referring to that I'm going to give them to you. They're going to, instead of fighting you, they're going to come and join you. And, and they're going to be forced to admit, yes, you believe in the Messiah, you know, and, and when he says, you know, they say that they're Jews, but they're not, they're liars. What he's saying is they're, they are ethnically Jews, but they deny the very thing that makes them most distinctly Jewish, namely that they have a Messiah whom they reject. And so I think he's describing that their persecutors will become fellow worshipers with them. Verses 10 and 11, really really exciting stuff. He says, because you kept the word of my perseverance, I shall also keep you from the hour of testing, which is about to come on the whole inhabited world to test those who dwell on the earth. I am coming quickly. So this is interesting here. I only have time to, to summarize it. I, I, I believe what Christ is referring to he calls it the hour of testing. And when does he say the hour of testing would come? What does the text say? Say, say it again, Judy, nice and loud. The end of the world. Uh, yeah, yeah. And what's the language that he uses? How, how does he describe the hour of testing? Coming. coming soon or about to come? The hour of testing is about to come. It could come any second. This, that's called imminence. Imminence. This could happen at any second. 
And so the time of testing is about to come. What, what is the place of the testing? Where will the testing take place? How does he describe the, the place of this testing? On the whole world and those who dwell on the earth. So I believe that what Christ is referring to is a time of testing that will be felt, a brutal time of testing and, and probably suffering that will be felt throughout all the earth. And it could happen at any moment. That's very interesting. There's going to be a time of testing and it's going to explode onto the world and it's going to affect everybody on the planet except for who? What, what, what does Christ promise he will do for this church? Specifically, what does he say? I will keep you from the hour of testing. I, I think that's what Christ is referring to. I think Christ is referring to, I think the hour of testing is everything that's described in chapters 6 through 16. I think that is the hour of testing. And Christ says, I'm going to keep you from the hour of testing. Again, there's, there's various debates about this. But the, I think the issue is, is that Christ is promising that he would keep them from the hour of testing. They were never experienced any of it. In other words, he would evacuate them off the planet so that they would never have to experience the hour of testing. So I think what it is, I think he's talking about that he would do a supernatural evacuation of them, remove them from the planet so that they would never actually experience one second of this hour of testing that would come upon the world. The question is, is there, are there any indications in the text how he would remove them and evacuate them off the planet? Any, anything that you see? I think it is. I think it is. Again, it's subtle. Right? I, I, I don't know if I would um, you know, I don't know if I would uh, you know, build my entire life on, on this. Although I do think that this is, no, you know what? I would say that this is the strongest text in the New Testament for what we call the rapture. Again, you don't have to call it that, but I, but I, I hope you believe it, you know, because I think the grammar, again, you know, just so you know, people debate about, well, when it says keep from the hour of testing, that means they'll still be in the middle of it, but they just won't feel the effects of it. But the grammar rules that out. There are other ancient Greek writings that use this exact same construction, this verb and this preposition. And, you know, it indicates not experiencing any of it, being removed from a situation. Again, there's debate about that. No, it was contemporary with John. Because those things, although have not happened yet, could come at any moment. That sense of imminence, that doctrine of imminence, it could, it could happen. So that same urgency and sense of imminence is, by extension, extended to every church after that. It's kind of a mystery, kind of a weird deal. It's like, well, it hasn't, never came, so, right, but that's the whole point about that thing. The doctrine of imminence is that it could happen at any second. So I think we should still feel the same imminence and, like, the, the, this tribulation could could be unleashed at any moment, and yet the promise is Christ would remove them from it. I think the clue that they would be removed from it is in verse 11, when he says, I am coming quickly. This whole thing is about to come in the world. It's going to be really bad. It's going to affect everybody. I'm going to keep you from it. I am coming quickly. I think that's a subtle way of indicating how they will be removed. Again, it doesn't tell us everything, but I think it tells us enough. 
and he tells them to hold fast. Uh, the final church, I guess we're, I guess we're ending with Laodicea. Um, and the church of fearful lukewarmness. Again, we all know about the church of Laodicea, the church of fearful lukewarmness. With what, what's the, the church has a, a rich historical background. They were industrious. They were agriculturally uh, wealthy and rich and economically thriving. It was a safe and really pretty place to live. I, I think it's interesting that the city of Arlington is called the American Dream City. So uh, the Laodicea would have been the Asia Minor dream city. I don't know. Um, so it was, this, it was this really incredible place. And yet it was also a place of incredible spiritual danger. Um, they were spiritually arrogant. They were deluded. They, they were largely filled. This church was large, largely filled with people who were persuaded that they were saved. And, and Christ gives every indication that most of the church, most of the people in the church were not saved. So that's even worse, right? It's even almost worse than having unbelievers and people who think they're saved and yet they're not saved. I think that's the indication. This is a very sobering letter. Call it the church of what? Oh, uh, I don't know what I said. Fearful lukewarmness. Um, you know, the uh, again, this church has no commendations, only condemnations. And the condemnations are, I know your works. Uh, let me see, where am I? Verses 15 through 17. I know your works, that you are neither hot nor cold. I would rather that you be cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and you are neither hot nor cold, I am about to vomit you. That's the Greek word. I'm about to vomit you out of my mouth because you say I am rich and I have become healthy or wealthy and I have no need of anything. And you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked, period. Ouch. Ouch. Crazy. And, and what's the, the whole lukewarm metaphor that he uses here uh, Laodicea sat on top of a uh, of a a hill of sorts. They were uphill, and which meant if you're uphill, drinking water is a little scarce. So they had two locations from where water would come. There was Laodicea. No, 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 no. There wasn't Laodicea. Uh, Hierapolis and Colossae. So from Hierapolis, they would get kind of hot spring water, known for its medicinal purposes. And from Colossae, which was a little closer, they would get cool water that would be used for drinking. The problem is, is that when those uh, waters would get there via their pipes. Uh, the hot wouldn't be hot and the cold wouldn't be cold, it would be what? It would be lukewarm. And that's not particularly pleasant to drink. Although people say that it's more healthy for you. I don't know if that's true or not. But by the time the waters reached uh, Laodicea, they were lukewarm and sickening to drink and and really useless, useless for any purpose except to be what? Yeah, yeah, you spit it out. It's just not good for anything. It's like, gross. This is, this is nasty. I mean, dr- drink, a, drink a, a soda after it's been in your car on a hot day. It's like, oh, nasty, right? You know, uh, drink, drink a, a, you know, a hot coffee. You know, you have your coffee, you leave it out for four or five hours and then try to drink it. Or, or coffee after it's been in the pot all, all night. It's like, oh, nasty. So that's, that's what this is. The call to change, verse 18, I advise you. <laughs> when Christ says, I advise you to do something, it's, it, you know, it's like, 
Like, it's not like it's just a good idea. I advise you to buy from me gold, having been refined from fire, in order that you should become wealthy, and white clothes, in order that you should be uh, clothed, white garments, in order that you should be clothed, and the shame of your nakedness should not be revealed, and eye salve, in order to anoint your eyes, in order that you should see. A- apparently, uh, they again, they were a wealthy city, so there was lots of money, hence the me- mention of gold. They were also a manufacturer of black fabric. Apparently, they were really well known for having, you know, black wool that was strong and rugged. And, you know, if you work, if you're outdoorsy and you work outside or you're lumberjack, I guess you were Carhartt. Anyway, in those days, if you wanted something rugged and really valuable, you'd pay big money for the black wool of, of Laodicea. And then apparently they had an eye, uh, uh, an op, what's that called when doctors who work on eyes? Yeah, yeah, they had... Yeah, yeah, those people. They had a school there, and they had apparently manufactured medicines for eyes, and so this was like the go-to place if you had eye problems. And so they were sort of like boastful things about the city. It's like, well, we're a wealthy city. Well, we manufacture the finest, you know, rugged outdoor clothing in the world. You know, we're like, you know, we're like the Dickies plant in, in Fort Worth. <laughs> And, you know, you know, we have all this, you know, we're, we're top of the, you know, food chain in the medical industry, a pride, a, a point of boasting for them. And Christ picks at each one of those things. He says, you think you're wealthy, but you're not. You think you really got it down as far as like, you know, this whole thing, you know, you make these clothes and you are naked. And you really think you, you really think you got it down as far as your, you know, your fancy, you know, schmancy little medical school, and you really think you got things together in the medical field, and you know what? You're blind. You're blind. So he just, he just, you know, picks at these, at these things, showing them that they were spiritually arrogant and deluded, and, and, and yet he offers them hope in verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone should hear my voice and should open the door, I shall enter into him and he shall dine with me. I I shall dine with him and he shall dine with me. I think this is an eschatological call to repentance. Those who respond in brokenhearted confession and repentance will, will dine with him at the marriage feast of the Lamb. It's an invitation. And so Christ is literally offering this blind, miserable, naked church an opportunity to collectively repent and, and join him. And then verse 21, the promise to the overcomer. I think it's another kingdom reference. He offers them a seat at the table of his throne. I believe this is, this is the kingdom. This is the millennial kingdom where, where we co-reign with Christ. He, he's offering them a seat at that table. It's really, really profound stuff. Okay, so that, those are, that's chapter 1 through 3. That's pretty good, right? Four chapters? Um, no, no, three chapters. Can't. <laughs> math? I can't do math. Um, and I was hoping to get to chapters 4 and 5, but we'll make up for it somehow. Uh, what, uh, so we'll take a few minutes for questions. What, what are some things you want to know about that I didn't cover? And there was a whole bunch I didn't, I didn't cover. Uh, also, again, there's the number there, so I guess I should check my phone to see if any of you uh, uh, dinged me on anything. Hey, look at this. Uh, Okay, first question. How do we know that Revelation was written by John the Apostle rather than some other John Doe? Oh, that's that's a really interesting question. Um, I think the I think the greatest evidence would lie. uh, Yeah, that's that's a really good question because obviously he is identified by name. Could it be another John? You know, I mean, 
possibly theoretically speaking, the only thing is the internal evidence from the text, the the similarity of vocabulary to the Gospel of John and, and even the letters of John indicate a continuity in, in writing style. Obviously, Revelation is a very different book than those other ones, so there's a lot of crazy stuff. But uh, that, um, you know, similar similarity in vocabulary, similarity in time period, the dates match up. The evidence really seems to indicate that this was late 90s. John was there in late 90s. He was he was alive in late 90s. The, the historical details nails the historical details, gets those right. And, and so, uh, you know, although maybe there's not a slam dunk thing, you know, that would you know, like, well, that's the, that really seals the deal. All the accumulated evidence added together makes it be, it's like, this has to be the writer of Revelation. Oh, yes, thank you very much. Yes, and, and almost unanimously, thank you very much, all, almost unanimously, um, oh, no, geez, I, thank you, Charles. There, there's even, who was, Adam or Rich, who was the guy that he mentored Polycarp. And then who came after Polycarp? Yeah, yeah. So so there are writings from the guy that John uh, mentioned named Polycarp. And then there's the guy after Polycarp. We don't have any of Polycarp's writings, but we have the guy who was mentored by Polycarp. And he quoted Polycarp as saying that John was the author of Revelation. So there's really valid, credible church history that John was the author. Great, great question. All right, uh, next question here. Uh, I love this. This question has jumped into my mind. I love it. Uh, from your perspective, if the promise to Thyatira is that the overcomers will rule the nations applies to a millennial kingdom on earth, this would mean that the A, resurrection occurs before the millennium, right? Yes. If not, how would the promise be fulfilled to the overcomers of Thyatira? Okay, let me, let me, let me read that again. If the promise to Thyatira that the overcomers will rule the nations applies to a millennial kingdom on earth, would this mean that a resurrection occurs right before the millennial reign? If not, how would the promise be fulfilled to the overcomers of of Thyatira? Yeah, I, I, I may not be understanding the question right, but in answer to your question, yes... Uh, the promise to the overcomers to rule the nations, I believe that does apply to a millennial kingdom on the earth. I, I believe that Revelation chapter 20 verses uh, 4 through 7 particularly uh, indicates a resurrection of saints at the end of the age. And, and it, does, and it uh, describes in verse 7 and 8 uh, that they will reign on the earth. So I believe, if I'm understanding your question right, that the the offer to rule the nations would be include a resurrection at the end of the age, at which time they would be... uh, Oh, no, 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 no. No, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Let Let me back up. Okay. So, my bad. Here we go. Um... All right, at the rapture, if that's what you want to call it, there will be a resurrection. There's my little gravestone here. All right, and then when Christ comes, and again, 1 Thessalonians 4, oh, what is that, 12 through 17, there will be a resurrection of the dead. They will be with Christ. Revelation 19.10 is the Messianic banquet or feast. That's where we will be. And then Revelation 19.14 describes us, I believe, wearing white. And uh, we are also on white horses, and we come with Christ. And then Revelation 20 
uh, 1 through 10 describes the kingdom. So our resurrection, sorry, I, I kind of forgot what I was doing here. Uh, our resurrection will actually happen at the time of the rapture. We will uh, be with Christ uh, those seven years. Well said. Any minute now. Any minute. Hang on. It's imminent. It's imminent. Yes, precisely. Yep, that's exactly what he says there. History past all the people that are saved Christian. Yes, yep. And then the resurrection, there, there is another resurrection that happens here. And again, there's total debate about all this stuff. So if you don't fall in line with this, that's, that's fine. I, I hope you come around to this. But the resurrection that happens here is a resurrection of those who died here. Okay, so, so people get resurrected here, and there, there are those who died there. So the promise to Thyatira, whoever was a believer would get resurrected, and then when Christ returns, they would be given their kingdom co-rule responsibilities here. So I anyway, hope that helps. I don't know if my chart helps, but it's really fun to write on a whiteboard. Uh, uh, maybe, maybe one or two more questions. I don't want to keep us too long. Yeah. Ooh, I always get fearful, but your questions are too oh, hard. No. They're too they're too hard. Just kidding. I, you might have already mentioned it, but why did he say to the angel of the church of like these churches right? Why is he writing to the angel of the church? Yeah, that's a good that's a good question. There's debate about it. There's two views. One is that the angel refers to actual angelic beings. And the other view is that because the word angel, angelos, can mean angel as in an angelic being, or it can also mean a messenger. So the two views are one's an angelic being, one is a messenger in terms of some kind of leadership responsibility in terms of the church, or a messenger that would come and read the letter to the church, and yet he was still part of the church because he, you know, to the messenger of that church. Um, And again, I've kind of waffled back and forth. I guess the scales are slightly tipped towards a human being who has some sort of responsibilities in the church. Again, I'm, I need to go back and, and revisit that. The challenge is, is the word angelos, you know, it's used like 35 times or more in the book. And every other time, except for the seven letters, it refers to an angelic being. And so people think, well, if it refers to an angelic being in chapters 6 through 22... Why not chapters 2 and 3, Angelos, refer to an angelic being? Why, you know, so that, you know, there, I think there's some, there's some things to think about either way. So at this point, you know, maybe 5149, I'm leaning to it's a, a human messenger of some kind. There's probably really good cases, things that I... Right, precisely, precisely. That's why I think that messenger has some some validity to it. Although there's that whole thing of in uh, Revelation, or no, sorry, Daniel nine, when it talks about you know that there's these angelic beings. You know what I mean? That whole thing there, or there's the there's these angelic beings behind world powers, and it's like, well, what's that about? How am I going to preach on that? You know, what's what's that? So so there's some dynamic where there's you know, angelic powers, you know, that act as forces behind, protectors of, I don't know, there's something going on. I haven't preached through Daniel 9, so I don't know what's going on there. So that's the only thing that makes me think, well, what if they are 
angelic beings. But for now, I'm taking it as human human messengers. Uh, was that a hand, Tommy? Yeah, that was a hand. Okay, uh, we'll go you, you, and uh, and then you, Flora. Okay, go ahead, Tommy. Do you do you like the idea that these also refer to periods in church history? No, I don't like that idea. Uh, because well, so what he's referring to is a view that each of the seven churches refers to a different. Uh, era of human history. Uh, so John Walvoord held that view Churches. of ch- a diff- yeah yeah a different era of ch- of church history. Um, I I I don't think there's a lot of credibility to that because you know first of all it requires incredible ingenuity and creativity on behalf of the interpreter to make that work, and so the evidence to make that work doesn't come from the text itself but from the creativity of the one kind of doing doing the footwork, and it doesn't match up when people try to like make this this church refers to this period of church history this church refers to this like when you try to correlate the details it doesn't really add up you got to do some really fancy stuff I don't think there's any indication that any original readers like that that would be the intention that they would look at that and go oh obviously this is what this is referring to I just think it's I just think it's it's too far-fetched you know what do you think are you on that train uh, a, a little it, it's kind of amazing when you when you do match it up with a lot of these periods but it's just not anything I'm a little bit yeah yeah we won't draw daggers over that yeah, yeah thankfully yeah go ahead Yeah. <laughs> he's, uh, uh, he's really um, in this, uh, the realm of the supernatural. Yeah. On his lunch break, he's seeing visions. <laughs> you know, wild. I, I just, it just blows me away. Uh, yeah. Really incredible. Boy, that really would break up the monotony of the work, wouldn't it? <laughs> wow, I just had a vision about the end of the world. That was interesting. Now, back to work. Uh, yeah, really interesting. Yeah, Flora. So when you said is that like Yeah. Can't hear the question. Uh, her question was, does this refer to the millennial kingdom? And then the follow-up question was, isn't that a lot of people? Yeah, and, and what's what's the tension with that? What do you what do you feel there? Yeah, you know what? I mean, I don't know how that all is going to work out, um, but apparently it's it's gonna, you know. So, yeah, I don't know. It's it's a, Florence. It's not a bad question, you know. I mean, what, you know, what do we what do we do with all that? And so somehow, you know, God's going to nail the space issue, right? And um, so yeah, that's, that'll be. Yeah, everyone gets their own. That's that's yeah. That's it. I, I really don't. I really don't know, Flora. That's a good good question. All right. Uh, Last one, forever hold your peace here. Go ahead. Um, the whole time that you've been um, teaching, I was thinking, what if God wrote letters to all the TV churches that are on TV these days? What would those letters look like? You know, Joel Osteen. Yeah. The, refuses to give the gospel. Then the Church of Thyatira. It would be those. Yeah, yeah those letters would be. Yeah, it would be those letters. Yeah, really, you know, you know, I mean, those churches are all but holding to the teachings of the Nicolaitans and permitting Jezebel and, you know, holding fast to the teaching of Balak. I mean, that's that's what they're doing. I mean, there was wonky stuff, and it was ju- and the stuff that we see now with who you're talking about is just as wonky and wicked. Everything I've been studying is Jesus took such 
kind of harsh action to the old churches that were nowhere near what's going on today. Mm. When he takes action today, it's going to be massive. Yeah, yeah, for sure. For sure. Okay, well, that's that's it. Been two hours and, and 14 minutes. Um, thanks, thanks for being here. Uh, to be announced when part two will come. We'll cover chapters four and however many we can get to. But anyway, thanks for being here. Uh, sorry we didn't couldn't get to everything, but hopefully that, that helps us grapple with the book of Revelation a little better. Okay, thanks guys so much. You're dismissed. Oh, and thank you. Thank you uh, for people who brought the food and prepared. Uh, also, one other thing, if you were interested in signing up for ministry teams that we talked about today, there's that sign up there and Linda mentioned do you want us to pray for you for school yes uh, I leave next Sunday um, uh, to, to LA to take this big 15 hour exam broken up into five sessions and it's massive and so I could use your use your prayers on that it's not the most important fish biggest fish to fry in the universe but I could use your, your prayer on that so anyway thank you guys so much